Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Welcome everybody to another episode of our podcast. Good morning, Bliss. Good morning, still. Are you having any good middle of the nights lately? Uh, sleeping. That's good. That's really good. I want to give a shout out to a lot of our listeners, who I love dearly, by the way, because I get a lot of messaging from people saying, you know, I was driving to a birth at two in the morning and you and Bliss kept me awake. So that's I kind love of, that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. So let's catch up because there's a lot. Non-birth stuff going on, but a lot of stuff for me. What about you? What's going on? How are you feeling? Okay, let's st- let's start with that. I had a peaceful peaceful week back home after my tumultuous week uh, with the lovely people in North Carolina. Lovely people, but just a tumultuous week because anytime your retina detaches, it's not a good it's not a good week. Okay, <laughs> I guess I yeah. guess it could have been worse. Yeah. So I got back. You know, I had the oil put in my eye so I could fly and I got back and I went right to the eye doctor that same day in St. George. And he gave my surgeon in North Carolina a nice compliment, said he did a great job. And I'm stable right now. I mean, I'm looking, it's like looking through a six dirty screens. I feel like my cousin Vidi, I'm looking through seven bushes and all those leaves and all those trees and those dirty screens. And, you know, so that with that one eye and then my other eye isn't the greatest you know, it needs a correction. So I have to wear my glasses, you know, for far and often for reading. So I'm getting used to uh, adjusting to that. Um, but I had a peaceful week. I did some gardening. We did cleaning of the guest house, uh, some deep cleaning yesterday. So that was kind of fun. And then I did something that I've been wanting to do for a really long time. I went out to the hardware store and I bought a weed whacker. <laughs> and I was whacking weeds yesterday, and that was a lot. It was just a lot, a lot of fun to get because they're growing like weeds. I guess that's why they say that, don't they? But um, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I'm going to see the eye doctor this afternoon. I'm going back to St. George when we're done recording, and and then I'm actually going to stay overnight in St. George, and I'm going to catch an early flight tomorrow out to Newark to go help my daughter move in in Manhattan, flying into Newark, and I'll take a taxi across and. And go and visit my daughter for three or four days and help carry boxes and set stuff up and do dad stuff. So whenever my daughter wants me to do dad stuff, that's always highlight for me. Yeah. So you're feeling well enough to do that. Uh, I would do that if I even if I wasn't feeling that well. But yes, I'm feeling strong enough and well enough to do that. So I'm excited about that because, you know, first thing she says to me is, Dad, let's go to a movie. And that was our thing when we when she was little. So I'm very excited about that. And I said, yeah. And you know what? And there's three three New York local hockey teams still playing in the Stanley Cup playoff. I said, maybe we'll go see a Stanley Cup game. And she got real excited about that. Um, a little, it. it is going to be fun. I'm a little depressed now because my Kings are down three games to two. By the time this podcast comes out, it's very likely. I'll be really shocked if my Kings are still in the playoffs, but you never know. You never know. Yeah. Not over till it's over, right? Yeah. You never know. And uh, so that, so I'm doing fine. But thanks for asking. What about, yeah. What about you? You know, this has been a tough week. I just found out yesterday that my mom is in the hospital. I think that everything's okay. They're testing her heart. She had a stint put in years and years ago. So that's a little nerve wracking. And 
one of my really good friends, Tanya Walker, who's the midwife that I was going to partner with. I know. Found out that her daughter has lymphoma. Oh, she is. Yeah, she's 18. She's up there with her in the hospital. So, you know, my heart is really going out to her, obviously, because I've experienced having a child in the hospital and her, her son survived leukemia many years ago. So, I mean, it's just been one of those Wait, weeks. Tanya has a son who has leukemia and a daughter that has lymphoma. Yes. Oh God. There's so many questions I'd want to ask, but yeah, we'll save that. But um, no, it's just been an emotional. That's, that, that's like lightning striking twice in the same place. That's not no, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had, I had a really unusual case. I had a mom who had mastitis, which is not that unusual, but then I had a baby who had mastitis. So it was a baby girl. Um, they showed me pictures probably around 10 days, you know, swollen breast buds. One of them was red, kind of irritated around it. And I said, let's just keep an eye on it. And it got better. And then about three days ago, he sent me a picture and said, bliss, it looks like it's getting worse and really swollen. And I said, well, let's try some castor oil packs and see if maybe that will help. And if it doesn't get better, you know, they hadn't set up their relationship with a pediatrician yet. I said, you're going to have to see a pediatrician. So the next day it was definitely a lot more swollen and just, you know, did not look normal. And it was on one side. And so I said, okay, guys, we got to get you in with a pediatrician. Well, it turns out they called around to on my list, all of the recommendations that I had. They're in Newberry Park, which is kind of between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. And all of the pediatricians, this is the second time I've heard this in recent weeks, said that if the baby is not there in their office within 72 hours after a home birth, they won't take them. So here's a baby that actually needs some help. I don't want to send them to the hospital and none of the pediatricians will see them. So they finally called around, called around, finally found somebody who would take them in and they treated it with antibiotics. They had to go and see a a pediatric surgeon to have it lanced and drained and tested so that they could figure out specifically what the bacteria was so that they could have the antibiotics targeted a little bit better. Baby seems to be doing great. Supposedly it's super rare. The pediatrician had said that in their 20 year career, they had only seen it one other time. So it's just one of those random things. Yeah, so it, is, it is extremely rare. I've heard of it before too, but it's it's really rare. And I don't know what if there was. I don't know what would be a predisposing factor for something like that. So I think it is probably just random. I'm they were trying high. to say that potentially it was her GBS status. She did. She declined antibiotics, but that seems pretty unlikely to me. Seems like a weird correlation. Yeah, I don't know that GBS is a pathogen for mastitis, and and. Uh, yeah, I, they may have cultured it. I don't know. But I'm still, my jaw is still reconnecting when you said that no pediatrician would see her. Uh, actually, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm that even bothered me because <laughs> I've known that. For, <laughs> I've known that pediatricians won't do that. They, yeah. won't, they won't take, if you're sick, they'll tell you to go to urgent care as opposed to come to the office and let me take a look at you. And if, yeah. the, and if you're not vaccinated, some of them won't take you. Right, exactly. Right. So I don't know what happened to that once... I don't know if it was ever once noble profession, but it certainly lost its way. And like my profession and the leaders of my profession, the leadership has gone you know, crazy and off the deep end that this is something that's condoned. Like if I tell a person in California that who's had COVID that they don't need the vaccine, 
because they have natural immunity, that is unprofessional conduct. But if a pediatrician tells a baby, tells a parent of a baby who has a chest infection that I won't see you because you haven't been here within the first three days of life, that that's that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that seems really odd. Well, I wish I had the name of this pediatrician because she really did actually do a very good job because they were really hesitant to do the antibiotics. She really talked to them respectfully, never pushed vaccines on them. The protocol was to admit them to the hospital and they knew that they probably didn't want to do that. So they were trying to work with them and make sure they did blood work to make sure it wasn't systemic because then they really would have to go to the hospital. So I really do feel like the person that finally accepted them into care did a really good job with them. So there are some good ones out there. Oh yeah, there are. But the idea that that was something that they ran into an obstacle of was just, is just sort of overwhelming for me. Speaking of obstacles and stuff, let's just, uh, forecast our topic for today, which is optimal. And I use the word optimal in quotes, cord clamping. So we're going to talk about that later on. But before we do, I've got a few other things, if that's okay. Yeah, I thought we could just talk about cords in general too. Just just cords. Wherever you want to take it, but we're going to get yeah. to that in a second. Okay. But Great. First of all, I want to say that uh, as of today, which is April 26th, my podcast with Ellen Fisher came out and that's on YouTube, Ellen Fisher's channel. And also you can find it on Ellen Fisher podcast on your podcast app. We talked for over two hours. I just started listening to it this morning because this was, I think this was in February when I was in Hawaii and it finally came out. Uh, sadly, it's all still completely relevant. So nothing, is, nothing has gotten better. <laughs> and we talk about all kinds of subjects and she does a very professional job and I was honored to be on there. And we'll be putting up some reels on that. So if you, people would want to listen to another couple hours of me, they can go to the Ellen Fisher podcast or even watch our interview live on, I mean, not recorded, but in person on YouTube, on her YouTube channel. Uh, and we'll share the links, of course, in the show notes, as always. And can then, ta- go ahead. Go ahead. No, you I was just going to say, if you're talking about podcasts, I would I would tell you a couple that came out too, but go, you finish. No, no, I was finished with that. I was going to move on to something else. So go ahead. Okay. So um, the feedback link interviewed me for Cesarean Awareness Week questions for midwives regarding VBACs and HVACs. So that just came out this week. Um, You can take a look at that. And then there was a really great interview with one of my clients. Her name is Michelle Vaughn, and it was on happy home birth a few weeks back. So you might have to search for it, but really is awesome because she compares similar birth stories in two different scenarios, one with her first birth in the hospital, and then the second one home birth with me. And so she just really lays it out, her and the interviewer, so, so well. And if that's something you might want to check out and share with people who are, you know, wondering why would you do a home birth? It's a really good one. I'll find the links and I'll put them in the show notes. Great. Okay. So I got the notes on that. Speaking of another podcast, I was interviewed by Moms Off the Record podcast, which won't come out until May 5th, which is about the time that this one will have just come out or maybe shortly, or this one will come out shortly after. But they did something really cute. They actually took down a bunch of my quotes and they sent them to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to read the short ones because some of them are longer than others. But these are just some uh, some Dr. Stewisms that, that I often say a lot, but to see it actually in writing is kind of fun. Yeah, totally. One of them, it says... I said to them, you said that I give unbiased information. That would be absolutely untrue. Everyone has biased information. It's just that we recognize that we have a bias and we're willing to share that thought. Great. 
Yep, I've heard you say that. (laughs) And to me, nothing can be more obtuse than believing that the CDC has your best interest at heart. (laughs) That's another one. (laughs) Um, Let's see. When you forget about nature, you end up needing technology. Talk about that one. And then there's... During the COVID thing, ACOG did something that's never been done before in the history of obstetrics, and that's recommend a medication that has never been tested in pregnant women to pregnant women. One of the worst things that ever happened to medicine was the corporatization of doctors becoming employees. Don't be afraid to change doctors even late in pregnancy. You cannot trust what's published in a journal anymore. We saw that during COVID where the Lancet and the New England Journal, both supposedly very reputable journals, both had to retract stories that they published that were false. How does something like that even get through peer review? That's the scary part, Bliss, is that the peer review process is so corrupted right now that if you have a a viewpoint or even data that's alternative to the narrative, the likelihood that you're going to find anyone willing to peer review it is minimal. And even if they do, it probably won't get published in in a mainstream journal, which is why Rick and I, by the way, we're getting really close to getting our data out there. I keep I want to keep bringing it up because it keeps me on on my toes to get this our twin home birth paper out there. So that's coming. You know, we've been talking about it since last summer. That's why I'm laughing. That's why I'm chuckling. <laughs> I know I know you said it's Rixa, but well, making the, me laugh. The process the process is the process is tedious. Yeah, arduous. I you know, because arduous is is that a better word than tedious? <laughs> Did you say arduous? Doesn't arduous like add in like that it's, it just is, it takes, it's not just tedious. Like you're doing the same thing over and over again, but are yeah, just like, it's work. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I don't know. I like language. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have some letters. So let's take a quick break okay. from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Hey, Bliss, guess what time it is? It's time to talk about our sponsors. Yeah. We're going to talk about Needed. And you know, that's the product that I've been using. And I think you probably have too. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So tell me why. Well, you know, we're very selective about who we partner with. And Needed is an amazing company that's women-owned and really has done the work to bring really quality products to the market. One of them is Julie Sawaya, who was a client of mine. She has two home births. And we did do an episode on her. So you guys can go back and check her out because it's really amazing they've done. And I... Love the products because of that. And also I I really love supporting a company that has a supplement that is helpful for women who have nausea. So they have their prenatal vitamins in a powder form and also in another form that's called they call essentials, which is just the basics. So that if a woman is having nausea, which happens quite frequently, they can still take their prenatal vitamins. So yeah, Julian Ryan they hand selected every ingredient and nutrient dose. And they spend thousands of hours reviewing supplier sourcing records, clinical literature to come up with the best possible combination of substances in their products, which which include things like their prenatal vitamin, which you just mentioned, which comes in that powdered form, which you love. And they have a pre and probiotic. They have a collagen supplement. They have a stress support, sleep and relaxation support, hydration support. They have choline and CoQ10. And they also have a men's health plan as well. So get your husband's. Mm -hmm online. Go check them out. You go to thisisneeded.com and use the code word birthing instincts. When you do that, you'll save 20% off your one-time order. So that's thisisneeded.com, code word birthing instincts for 20% off your one-time order. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. 
I have some letters. So I got a couple about Breach, which is, you know, dear to me in my, my heart. But of course, these are never good letters. Well, sometimes they are actually. I labeled Breach Misinformation and Skewing of Consent. This is from Whitney uh, in, I think, Georgia. And she says, Hi, Dr. Stu, I've been listening to your podcast and it's opened my eyes to all the possibilities surrounding birth. I was wondering if you could recommendations of any doctors or midwives in the Atlanta area that are trained in breech birth. A friend of mine has been told that she will have a C-section in three weeks because her baby is butt down. She's not happy about that being her only option. Her insurance is Kaiser, so she doesn't feel she has another choice. Thanks in advance for any resources you can send my way. So a couple things. I am working on my breech resource thing. I don't have it done yet. I've got a whole bunch of papers. I bought a U.S. map. And I'm going to put it on the wall. And I bought these little red stickers. And I'm going to use a pen that you can write on the map. And I'm going to start to keep track of that. Right now, I I don't really know anybody in Atlanta. I know that Brad Boots Taylor used to be in Atlanta. But here's what I wrote to her back because there's so much wrapped into that. I don't know the laws of Georgia for midwives. Can they support breach out of the hospital? Offhand, the only doctor I was aware who supported breach was run out of practice by his hospital. So cruel and unethical. Your friend should not let herself be bound by her insurance. So that's number one lesson there. The fact that she has whatever insurance doesn't happen to, this one happens to be Kaiser, but whatever insurance you have, they should not be dictating the care that you receive. They should be giving you information and be having to supply you with care that's that's a reasonable option. And if they don't offer that, then there's something called an, what's it called? An emergency? In-networking. Yeah, in-network exemption. That's it. Thank you where that's why you're the best co-host ever, because you know my sentences before I even finish them. But yeah, if if they don't offer breach delivery, then they should have to pay for you to have one somewhere else. Because right. breach is not an unreasonable choice. It's certainly an evidence-supported choice, um, and they should do that. So you have to, but you're going to have to fight for that. And now you have three weeks to do it, which is always tough. I said, this is a life event worth pursuing every option, even if it means crossing state lines or spending out of pocket initially and then fighting with your insurance company to get them to pay you back. And then I said, and then they said, three weeks from now, is her doctor or doula doing anything to encourage her to turn her baby if all they offer her is cesarean? So I don't know if that's even an option or what's going on back there, but certainly if the only option is cesarean, they ought to offer her spinning babies and exercise and chiropractic and pay for all that. And they offer offer her an external version. Again, I know these things, I'd rather, I'd rather wish we didn't have to do them all if the vaginal breech birth was a reasonable and easily available option. We shouldn't have to do any of that stuff, but at least they should do that other than just telling her. Now, again, I'm just hearing a story from Whitney. She may be leaving out a lot of information and maybe they are doing these things, but just the way these things are written and my knowledge of how it works in the hospital is they're doing everything they can to just get her to encourage her to sign up for that scheduled C-section. And she's lucky to have this friend. Yeah. Breach vaginal birth for most moms is a reasonable literature-supported option in skilled hands, and I and others are trying to reteach the skill. Stories like this are way too numerous and upsetting, no matter what. Thank you for trusting me and reaching out. So thanks, Whitney, for that. Then I have another another one from uh, one of my old clients named Sarah. I don't know if you were involved with her care. She had twins. And she ended up getting transferred in labor and ended up having a vaginal delivery of her twins. I think it was with Dr. Chavira, could have been Crane. And the twins were born six hours apart, which is almost something that would never happen in the hospital. So I just remember her story very well. And she says, hi, Stu, how are you? I know you're probably super busy doing amazing things for the birthing community, but I was wondering if you had a resource for exercise activities to do to, quote, move, unquote, a breached babe. Get this. 
The next sentence. I have a client that is 20 weeks pregnant and baby is breech. Of course, the docs at UCLA are putting the fear into her that the baby needs to turn so she doesn't get a C-section. She's already had one vaginal birth and is adamant for another. Thank you for your time and appreciate any guidance. Comment on that, Bliss, well, before I, I do. Babies are breached at 20 weeks. So I would try and encourage her not to stress too much right now, just to do body balancing that you can access through Spinning Baby's website and be active and, you know, just check in later on because oftentimes babies will turn. Doctors wake up. UCLA doctors wake up. The fact that you even brought up that the baby is breached at 20 weeks and that could be an issue is not informed consent. Right. It's vomiting fear is what it is. Yeah. You know, I wrote Sarah at 20 weeks, nearly 40% of babies are breached. It's normal. To even start to plant seeds of anxiety by her medical team is simply wrong and professionally stupid. You know, I've gotten to the point now where I, I don't, I don't, I don't even mince words anymore. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Good. it's stupid. That that's great. what, that's the take home message when she left from her 20 week scan was not that she has an anatomically perfect baby. And I'm sure she got this message too, that her baby looked perfect and there's the face and look at that, isn't it cute? And it looks like Uncle Bob and all that stuff. But no, she's gonna have to start to already worry about something. And what does worry do to the mammal who's pregnant? Nothing good. Washes the baby in, in hormones that are not as pleasant for sure as when she is relaxed and joyful. To tell her that a C-section is the only option is unethical. If what you are telling me is accurate, she should immediately run from this group of doctors. <laughs> Never look back. Yeah. Not allow fear or money to be the deciding factor in their birth. This seems to be a running theme. Is make this like you always said, you're the one that taught me this, that this is a life event. And don't scrimp on it. Find a practitioner who respects her and the birth process, probably a midwife. She's a multip, for God's sakes. All right. She's a great. Right. What's okay. the success rate with multips and vaginal delivery of any uh, kind? For, oh, for you? For, for any of us. 99%. Right. Yeah. 99%. Here we yeah. go. And her baby has a 96 to 97% chance to turn on its own before term anyway. No exercises, no spinning baby should even be on the radar at this point. All right. Well. And then I, I said, oh, go ahead. Can I interject on that one? Of course. Yeah. So I used to really like feel similar about spinning babies, but after taking this workshop, not trying to turn the baby, but just bringing balance into the body is good for everybody. So there, there are daily essentials that are great and easy to do. But other than that, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Doing chiropractic, doing spinning babies, doing exercises, stretching, yoga, all good, but not with the with the seed of anxiety that this is going to prevent my baby from being breached when you're only 20 weeks. When I, when I read that and I said, she just had her 20 week scan and they're already scaring her about it. What's the matter? I mean, these doctors are not doctors. I don't know what I'd call them, but you're, you're not caring for people. This is not health care. This is health scare. Yeah. If we, can, if we can use a term. All right. Yeah. Sorry about that. All right. So Here's, a, here's another letter from Betsy, and this is about VBAC practitioners on the East Coast. And the reason I wanted to read this was, it's 2023, okay? VBAC is supported by every organization that there is, and yet there's a paucity of finding, the ability to find a VBAC practitioner. Similar to Bree, not quite as bad, but similar. Well, it's not, I mean, 
this even has the support most of the organizations and stuff in the yeah. world. There's no yeah. reason yet. So yeah. she says, I'm writing you both today. Um, oh, she says, hello, Dr. Stuenbliss. I hope your eye is doing okay. Wait. It's as good as it could possibly be right now. So thank you. I'm writing to you both today to ask if you have any contacts on the East Coast, specifically a Long Island area of New York that support VBAC. The fact that that she lives there and doesn't know anybody that supports VBAC is amazing to me that mm -hmm. it's still a thing that hospitals are still making VBAC some exceptional category that is different from any other birth. It's not. It's just a labor and a birth that rarely, okay, something adverse may happen, but far more often, many adverse things happen in the hospital have nothing to do with the previous cesarean section, simply by the model by which the hospital is, is managing you. And I mean yeah. managing, I say that word on purpose, because they are managing you, and they manage you right into fetal distress or fetal intolerance to labor, and do a C-section at a rate of 30 plus percent, and think that their model's okay, and they have emergency C-sections for all kinds of things that they handle just fine, but this one thing where one in several hundred to a thousand feedbacks will end up with a true crash emergency, and they say they won't do that. It's, it's inexcusable in my mind. Anyway, a family member had her first baby by cesarean due to a failed induction, 39 weeks and five days due to gestational diabetes controlled by diet. And she says, ridiculous, don't get me started. So she's obviously <laughs> a fellow traveler. Anyway, she's planning. So she really, she's one of those people that had the unnecessary cesarean that okay. No doctor will say they ever did an unnecessary cesarean, but but yet half are unnecessary. Anyway, she's planning on having a VBAC, and I'd love to be able to give her some midwifery and obstetric contacts that you know of and recommend. This is a question. I wish I knew these people. I wish I knew there was a network of people that I could just go to a logbook or go to a, a website and just say say that, but there there isn't. She's already found a doctor at a nearby hospital that has a 60% success rate with VBAC. Which, by the way, is about the standard in the hospital, 60 to 70% success rate with VBAC. So hospitals that don't allow women choice of a VBAC are forcing 60 to 70% of those women in their community to have an unnecessary surgery, which puts them, their baby, and their future babies at greater risk. That's, and, they're, and they're the purveyors of ethics of my profession. All right. Now, in the home birthing, as she says, I started the conversation with her that home birth VBAC with a midwife has a higher success rate, and it does, much higher. And we spoke briefly about the topic of fear and distrust and what makes her feel safe. Interestingly, her partner is more up for a home birth next time because of how badly things went the first time, but she is still scared since she is new to the midwifery model of care. I've listened to your episode on VBAC and I've also forwarded the resources you cite, VBAC Facts, I can. I'm also going to give her Hazel Keetle's new book on VBAC. Have you heard of that? I haven't. Okay, I'll have to find the link to that, put that in the show notes too, which helps create a useful plan for women. But the most important thing is a trustworthy and faithful healthcare practitioner, her doula, in the first pregnancy, let her down and did not advocate for her when she felt abandoned, and she felt abandoned. Uh, do you have any contacts I could get in touch with? I gave her a physician I know that's in Manhattan named Eden, Eden Fromberg, because although I don't know that Eden's doing deliveries or whatever, Eden knows the New York City community, so maybe she could help her. But Again, there's got to be people in our listening group who, who may very well know um, that area of New York, the Long Island area. And if you do, you know, reach out if you want to, to me, and I'll make sure that I forward this to Betsy so that her client can get it. You're so sweet. I also think that I can and VBAC facts could be potential resources for maybe they have a list of providers potentially. 
Right. They they yeah. yeah um they probably do. Yeah. Right. So yeah. And everybody can find VBAC facts because it's just VBACFacts.com. <laughs> right. <laughs> and on the same thing about VBAC, someone wrote me that they sent me an ultrasound report that showed in the scar there was a little bit of fluid. And they were told that because of the fluid in the scar, that this is a greater risk of scar rupture. And there's not a lot of data on that. And I don't think it's true. But I wrote her back and I just thought my answer was sort of classic me. I said, I don't have any special insight on that. It's quite a rare finding. What tends to happen is those supportive of VBAC and informed decision-making would not make much of this finding. Those who want to instill anxiety and discourage VBAC would. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is the problem with ultrasound. It, mm -hmm. it has some good uses, but we've talked about this before. Ultrasound sometimes just finds things that don't mean anything. And yet now there's worry planted in this woman's mind because she went in for a 20-week scan, which even we sort of advocate for and in some, not always, but you know, if we're going to have one, that's the one we recommend. And then they find these things or they find a simple isolated choroid plexus cyst or an echogenic focus in the heart an otherwise normal ultrasound with a baby that's had a normal NIPT screening. And they, they say there's, this means nothing, but come back in six weeks so we can take a look at it again. Well, if it means nothing, why am I coming back in six weeks? And what are you going to be thinking about for those six weeks, even though they said it means nothing? Because you're thinking, well, if he wants to see me back, maybe it is something and he's not telling me. So you worry. Yeah. And I just did a um, postpartum processing session with a woman yesterday. And she was, this is not the first time I've heard this, but she got positive results or increased risk for Turner syndrome. And this, I've heard it many times with NIPT. And she just talked about her experience of going in for the amniocentesis and then and like varying opinions and some of them telling her straight to her face that it was a 90% chance that her baby would not survive and that she can, should consider termination. And she was sitting there in the office with me with this beautiful four-month-old baby. So we've talked about that too. Sometimes these, these tests, you know, they can be amazing, but they also can be things that just send us down the rabbit hole of worry. Yeah. And remember, it's not our skepticism that should bother you. It's their certainty. <laughs> and so, yeah, when people are that certain about about something or say stuff like that to you, and they really even know you, um, I'm not sure if they're just doing it because genetic counseling is often just often impersonal and very mathematical. And so they say these things, but I don't know that there's a lot of data. I don't know if you're going to get a result back in a few days. Why? Why say anything? Exactly. You know, it's the same thing with moms who call me who are bleeding early in pregnancy. I'm like, okay, let's just do some more investigation to see because sometimes there's bleeding and everything is fine. You know, like just get the information and then go from there rather than telling somebody that it could potentially be something that is terrifying. It's awful. Uh oh, what time is it? It's time for Branch Basics. <laughs> it's time to support one of our sponsors who support us. And without them supporting us, I would go broke. <laughs> so, so thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Branch Basics. And we want you guys to support our sponsors because, again, they help support the podcast. And we are very picky about who we choose. So you know, because hopefully those of you who are our fellow travelers trust us and know that we are going to pick people 
to um, recommend that have great products and a great story. And I, I love that this is a female-owned company, people who have made the decision to heal their bodies and their lives with food as medicine, which is one of my tenants, and also um, you know having non-toxic products in our homes is really important. So um, I love this product. I've been using it for many months before we decided to take them on as a sponsor. And um, not only are they natural, but they really work well. And it really will simplify your home because it's one concentrate that works for so many things. Hand soap, washing um, your clothes, all-purpose cleaner, glass cleaner. You can even wash your vegetables with it. I have a group of women friends up here who were talking about like that. It's so important. They, you know, to even with organic to make sure that you wash your vegetables. So this is a product that you can use for all of those things. And their booster that they have is a bleach replacement and it really works well. Don't you think, Stu, you've been using it too? Yeah. I mean, I have no complaints about my laundry whatsoever. So that's pretty cool. And my God bless, you're really good at that. That was really that was really a good testimonial to Branch Basics. <laughs> so um, again, I hope that you guys thought it was as good as I did and go out and purchase some Branch Basics products. You go to links.branchbasics.com backslash birthing instincts for 15% off your starter kit. That's links.branchbasics.com backslash birthing instincts. You get 15% off a starter kit. Thanks, Branch Basics. Thank you. I have one that's going to lead us into our topic today, and this is from our our, our mutual Great. friend Diana, who is a birth photographer. We both know her very well. Yes. And uh, she says, "Dear Stu and Bliss, you know nobody wrote Goddess Bliss this week, so I don't know. We got to we got to reiterate that. No, we Goddess don't. Bliss. <laughs> I hope this finds you well. I miss you both, and I'm so grateful I can listen to the podcast and keep you close. It's the most comforting thing I like to do when I'm driving to a birth in the middle of the night." Yeah. Yeah. All right. I wanted to reach out because I recently came across a very strange and what she she says, illegal matter. I don't know that it's illegal because I don't know exactly what's happening here. But I was recently at a hospital birth in L.A. where the and she and she capitalized. She says medwife. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's meant to be slightly pejorative, I think. All of a sudden, let mom know that she would only allow for a one minute delayed cord clamping after the baby was born so that she could make the best of collecting baby's blood from the umbilical cord. Yeah. That's in quotes. Mom was in the middle of pushing, hello timing, as she says. So <laughs> I let the provider know that my clients were not planning to do any cord banking. At that point, the medwife specified that the blood was to be collected for the, quote, universal blood bank, unquote, and that this is done especially when the mom has O positive blood type. This is very confusing and suspicious to me. Isn't O positive the universal donor blood type? Actually, the universal donor is O negative, but that's not relevant to the story anyway. I know this means that it can donate to all other blood types, so that would be O negative. As long as it also means that O positive can only receive from O positive because Mother Nature doesn't do things at random. O positive is also the most common blood type. That's true. So why on earth did this provider need my client's baby's blood? What is the universal blood bank? Is it a California state thing? Who set it up and why? Stem cell harvesting, anyone? Shouldn't there be some type of written consent when this happens during birth and the baby's DNA is collected? This is the second time I witnessed this scenario in two different hospitals in Los Angeles. In the first case, it was explained to the clients as the nurse was extracting blood from the umbilical cord after the placenta had been birthed 
and only because I asked what she was doing, literally hiding in the little corner of the room. Now, I thought about this for a second, and I thought, in that case, it might have been that they were just collecting small tubes of blood to get the baby's blood type and possibly do a, an H&H on the baby. No, but they, they, do, they do take blood to put in the, the cord blood banking. Pretty much standard, I believe. As far as I know, when I was a doula, that's the standard thing that they do. They take cord blood without permission and they put it and they use it to do for stem cells? Okay. Universal cord blood banking, yeah. Okay, so let me just say a couple things. First of all, even if they're just drawing blood to check the baby's blood type and, and hematocrit, they should give they should tell the parents what they're doing. Yes. It's not their it's not their right to do that without consent. Yes. But if they are doing what you just said without inform without consent, that is well, that is illegal. It's a taking of something, it's a taking of property that doesn't belong to them. She says, I have tried to think of a good and moral reason for this behavior, and I cannot think of any, since these two different hospitals intentionally acquired information that is private and extremely personal without consent. I hope I am wrong, and I hope you can share some wisdom on the matter. The only common denominator between these two separate events is that both mothers in in these cases were not vaccinated from COVID, and this information was clearly stated in their charts. Perhaps this will help any other mother out there who is planning to birth in a hospital environment, as I believe that knowledge is power, and God knows we all need a lot of empowerment when we give birth. Love always, Diana. So just a quick note, I, I contacted two of my former associates who work at Cedars and asked them if they do this. And they said, absolutely not, that, oh, that, that okay. they don't. Okay. That Cedars, that as far as they know, they've never been asked to collect blood to give it, you know, to, with, you know, to, give it to a universal blood bank. But you seem to be pretty com- confident that this is happening at some hospital. I'm sure that I've witnessed it as a doula for sure. Cause similar, we ask questions, you know, when things are going on that we don't necessarily understand so that we can inform the client. And I know for a fact that I've heard it before that they use it for, um, for that. Yeah. So what I, all I think Diana's right in saying that families giving birth at hospitals need to ask these questions. Sure. Find out. Now, is there any reason to say no about giving blood to a universal blood bank? Probably not, as long as you trust that they're going to actually use it for that and not, you know, some experimental thing or not track your baby's DNA or do things because we live in a surveillance state right now. And everything is, if you pay attention, everything is a little bit suspicious, especially when they do it without telling you they're doing it. That just leads to, you know, to lack of confidence in a system that's already, you know, spiraling downhill and drowning in lack of confidence. Yes. All right. But anyway, I thought it was good to bring it up because it talks about that she got one minute of delayed cord clamping. So this is a topic that was dear to you and you brought it up and you wanted to talk a lot about it. So I'm going to let you go. We're going to talk a little bit about cord clamping and cords in general and stuff like that. We did we did talk about, I think, nuchal cords once already, right? <laughs> not so not? much. Oh, okay. No, what I would love you to start with, because I like the way that you describe it. Can you talk about the anatomy of the cord first and the, how it, like the physiology? First, let's start yeah, there. Sure. I mean, the umbilical cord is obviously your lifeline. The baby's. Yeah, you know, a bit well, yours to the baby's lifeline. It's like the it's like yeah. your it's like the space shuttle to the person that's doing a spacewalk. Mm-hmm. You know, if they don't have that cord going on, not only are they probably getting some of their oxygen and stuff through that cord, but if that cord snaps, they're gone <laughs> forever. <laughs> so it's the same sort of thing. The cord is designed by nature in a beautiful way 
It inserts into the placenta on one end and usually in the more central area, but obviously we've talked about weird cord insertion. That I know we did talk about. So we won't go mm -hmm. into that. And then it inserts into the baby's belly button, which is why every single person has a belly button. Pretty darn amazing. <laughs> if you see somebody without a belly button, you got to wonder if, where, they, where they came from. And um, an innie and an outie doesn't have anything to do with how the cord is clamped and cut or separated. It has, it's more genetics. Yeah. It is yeah. It's completely genetics mm -hmm. like, or, or something that's unrelated to how the cord was cut because part of the cord you cut just dies and falls off anyway. So the cord itself is, is made up of three vessels has two arteries and one vein arteries take blood away from the baby. And the vein takes blood back to the baby. That back, that's how arteries and veins are defined. Arteries are more thick-walled because their higher pressure vein is more thin-walled. If you look at an umbilical cord, you'll see there's usually the vein is the bigger vessel, and then there's two thicker-walled arteries. And they're buried in this stuff called Wharton's jelly, which is like rubber. It's like buying a good hose at Home Depot. Even if it's bent or kinked, the, the blood will still continue to flow through it. Um, the two arteries are carrying, unlike in our own body, the circulation is Reversed isn't exactly the right word, but it's sort of reversed in that the arteries are carrying away the waste products from the baby to the mother. And the vein is bringing back the oxygenated glu glucose, proteins, all the, all the great hormones mom's secreting are all coming back through the vein portal to the baby. Where in our body, the vein is actually the one's taking the bad stuff back to the heart so it can pump it through the lungs and the liver and then get filtered out through via the arteries. So it's sort of backwards, but so there's two arteries, one vein. Occasionally you can have anomalies of the cord where you have only one artery. Most of the time that's an incidental finding. Sometimes it's associated with, with other anatomic abnormalities of the cardiovascular system or the renal system. And so they'll take a good look at it. But if you only have a one vessel, uh, one artery cord, but nothing else seems to be abnormal, then rarely does that signify you have a more significant problem. So although, again, in the medical model, it will be an alert. It'll be a reason that they'll want to survey you closer. They'll want to do more testing on you. I'm not sure that there's evidence that actually shows that there's a better outcome by doing all that, but there's certainly a lot more worrying that goes on. I had a, oh, I had a mom last year who had a beautiful water birth with a two-vessel cord. So it doesn't always mean that it's high risk. Though. Yeah, I mean, you know, in every, every patient that you and I have that delivers at home who has a two-vessel cord obviously had a normal birth because they delivered with us at home. So yeah. I don't know what the frequency is. It's not even important. But most of them are three vessels. That's sort of the anatomy of the cord. And occasionally okay. the cord can get tangled. You can get a knot in the cord. Cords are really important when it comes to twins because if they're mono-mono twins, cords can get completely tangled up when two twins are in the same size. But then in the same sack, but I'm going off on a, on a deeper tangent than we really need for this discussion. So, you know, that's how it works. And then once the um, baby comes out, the cord will continue to exchange with the baby until nature decides it's no longer necessary. I don't know what exactly is the trigger. It's not exposure to air. It may be the baby's partial pressure of oxygen when the baby's lungs start kicking in and its O2 sats go up into our range, which is in the high, you know, in the high 90s that may trigger, like it triggers the, the, the ductus arteriosus to close in, in the, between the artery, the aorta and the pulmonary artery. It may also trigger the cord to collapse because sometimes cords will stop pulsating very shortly after birth. And sometimes, you know, 45 minutes later, they're still pulsating along. So I have no knowledge of exactly why it stops when it stops. Okay? Yeah. And, and 
you as a doctor, when you were first taught about this, the standard was to cut and clamp the cord immediately after baby was born, correct? Yeah, that was based on the idea that when a baby takes its first breaths, it creates negative interthoracic pressure, which draws in a significant amount of blood from the uh, from the placenta. And why they study this stuff, like I can't explain why they study stuff like this, but they found that within the first few breasts, the baby's majority of its blood, you know, it gets like 30, 50, 60 cc's back into its body. And so they thought that at by, by one minute, it gets 80 cc's, by three minutes, it gets 100 cc's, but they thought that really didn't make any difference. So that's why initially they recommended one minute, but then it got shorter and shorter and shorter and essentially became immediate cord clamping, I think mostly out of convenience and people stopped thinking altogether. There's yeah. just no more, there's no more thinking. <laughs> so let's talk about the difference between, I mean, that's immediate cord clamping and then there's delayed cord clamping and optimal cord clamping. So let's talk about the difference because sometimes they're used interchangeably, but they really are different. So delayed cord clamping different than what you just described, which is more immediate is the name typically given to a, a practice of waiting before clamping the baby's umbilical cord at birth. It's recommended by many international bodies, including the World Health Organization, ACOG, ARCOG, and NICE, NICE, N-I-C-E. There's a huge amount of research that recommends delayed cord clamping for all babies and particularly preterm neonates. They do much, much better when they get all of the blood that they that is theirs. The timing of delay in clamping and cutting the umbilical cord varies from one to five minutes. So this is where when people are delivering in the hospital, many times will be different opinions depending on the doctor's comfort level of how long they're willing to wait. Um, longer times providing the most advantage to the newborn. Delayed cord clamping can also be called deferred cord clamping, which I haven't really heard that very much. So optimal cord clamping is what as is what we would recommend, which is the most physiologic way of managing this process. And that is optimal cord clamping is the term used when the umbilical cord vessels are allowed to close naturally until the cord stops pulsating and becomes white before it is clamped and cut. This often takes much longer than five minutes. I've seen at home anywhere to like 40 minutes. And I even saw one that the placenta was out and it was still pulsating. And I actually called the local pediatrician and said, I've never seen this before. It's really strange. What do you think? And he said, I don't see any benefits of continuing to wait. There's something going on where it's not actually supposed to continue to do that after the... Yeah. Can I comment on that for a sec? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, if the placenta is not attached to mom anymore, there's no exchange going on. So sometimes what you're, you're doing, the baby's heartbeat is just being, is just because the arteries are still intact it's it's just being reverberated through that or or just pushed you know you're still feeling the pulse but there's not really any circulation going on yeah and it, there's no benefit it's kind of like sometimes in your in your you know you feel your heart beating you feel your heart pounding or you or you you know you, you you feel it in your ears you can feel your heart beating it's just it's just reverberated on through that because obviously if the cord placenta is not attached to mom anymore, then there is no benefit to the fetal circulation. So, right. I mean, that wouldn't make any, any medical sense. Exactly. Okay. Again, there's no set time definition. Some cords complete the blood transfer quickly and others pulse for up to an hour. The hashtag wait for white is often used to describe this process. Umbilical cord clamping has the greatest advantages to the newborn. 
optimal cord clamping allows all babies circulating iron, oxygen, and stem cell rich blood to move from the placenta to the baby. It's actually the baby's blood. It's their blood. So if you look, you know, what we do often in this podcast is use common sense and go back to looking at what nature would do. So, you know, babies don't come with a clamp to put on them when they come out, right? So there's designed to that process of waiting until the cord is not pulsating anymore and it's completely flaccid and white before you separate or clamp the cord. Yeah. One of our, one of my uh, people that I really admire a lot, James, the midwife, and I think he's in Wales, posted Mm -hmm. a picture of of his goats giving birth yesterday. And, you know, baby comes out and and the mom starts to lick the baby and the mom starts to (laughs) lick herself. And then it looked like you couldn't see it. It looked like she was almost biting the cord. I couldn't see it for sure. Mm-hmm. But in most mammals, the, the cord just snaps or just disappears and babies don't bleed out through their umbilicus because that happens because there's this immediate vasospasm going on where the things shut down. We get so freaked out if the cord snaps because the baby's losing blood. So we automatically will grab it or put a clamp on it or do something as makes perfect common sense to do. But ultimately, would that baby exsanguinate uh, in the setting where it's now breathing oxygen on its own, which would probably cause those vessels to collapse down? I don't know. And I don't think anyone's going to do a, a, an experiment and see what happens because I don't think <laughs> that would pass human subjects. No. But uh, yeah. yeah, but other mammals, as you said, nobody clamps a cord ever. And yeah. somehow they do fine. And it makes sense that they would they would chew it off at some point if it didn't snap, because then they'd be dragging around the placenta, which not very good for predators, right? So the other thing that they talk about a lot more now than they used to is that also if the baby is having difficulty transitioning, so if we're needing to do something like NRP or something like of, of that nature, keeping the cord intact gives that baby a more gentle transition because they're still getting oxygen rich blood obviously if the placenta hasn't delivered as we discussed from the mom and so the need to get oxygen is not as high so they can transition a little smoother and it's the best recommendations at this point is to keep it intact until that baby has fully transitioned right and that would be that would be optimal cord clamping, which, uh, you know, deferred cord clamping is also that, you know, it's an interesting term. I mean, we use language, you know, or how about like, you know, no cord clamping? Because <laughs> really, again, when, you know, in most of our births, the baby stays attached, the placenta comes out, we put it in a bag or bowl sitting next mm-hmm. to mom. And, you know, maybe an hour later, whenever the golden hour is over or something like that, or we want to do examine the baby or mom wants to get up and go to the bathroom or something. At that point, we may say, well, you, let's, let's cut the cord. It's more of a ceremonial thing than anything else. Uh, we, we always put a rubber band or a clamp on the baby's side, but ultimately at that point, there'd be no reason to do that. Um, it's just that nobody, nobody wants to take the chance <laughs> of that happening. And I, I wanted to back up with something. When I mentioned the Wharton's jelly and how it's like the good hose from Home Depot, uh-huh. for, for people who aren't in the birth world itself, who hear the the fear of the thing about the cord around the neck and stuff like that first of all babies cannot choke on an umbilical cord because they're not using their trachea to breathe so the idea that something is around their neck we anthropomorphize those babies because if we had something around our neck we'd be worried about choking 
but babies aren't going to do that. And the cords are designed with this rubbery stuff to protect the vessels. So it's also not something where because the cord is around the neck and your doctor says, oh, the cord is around the neck, we need to, uh, we need to do a section for that or we need to do that. That's bullshit. Uh, there are reasons to do C-sections. That's not one of them. And cords are generally of varying length. Didn't talk about that when I was talking about the anatomy of the cord. Sometimes you can have a short cord, but babies with a short cord still deliver vaginally. And some babies have a really long cord because they got really tangled up in it early on. And so nature decided that we better make it really longer. And yeah, I guess that's good English. Um, really long? Longer, I guess. Yeah. All right. Sorry. That's my that's my mom coming back to haunt me. My mom, the English teacher. So I have to be very careful. You know, I did a nuchal cord post on Instagram the other day and it got a ton of comments. Like it was just a lot going on on that post. But there was a woman who wrote to me and said, you know, a couple of interesting things came up. One is that it's nature's design to have it wrapped around the body if you have a long cord, because then there's less likelihood of having a prolapse, which is interesting. The other thing this mom said was that from her research, because she did have a baby who passed, it was wrapped around the neck, but it was the cord around the ankles that caused the injury that caused the demise, which is really interesting. I haven't heard that before, but she said that, that nature has this way of, if a baby is moving a lot, like you were saying that it continues to have the cord grow longer and longer. Yeah. So I don't know. It's very, very interesting when you start to, to really take a deep dive into into the cord, but cord, nuchal cords, which is means it's around the neck happens in about 30% of births. And we see it at home all the time. And it, you simply, when the baby is born, you simply slip the cord off of the baby's neck. I have been uh, looking more. I mean, I'm always researching how to become more and more and more hands-off and what are, what are things that we're taught that maybe are not necessary. And so I'm really questioning if it really is necessary to check for a cord and release a cord all the time as a standard of care, rather than, um, than individualizing that. So I'm, it's something that I'm really not doing at this point in my practice. Yeah. You guys taught me that, that, that actually you can do the baby, you can do like almost a, a like somersault or something when the, the baby's got a cord around the neck, as the baby comes out, you just flip the body around and then you just unravel the baby from the cord as opposed to struggling to slip that cord over the baby's head while the baby's you know head is protruding but none of the shoulders are still inside because sometimes it's really tight and now you're messing yeah. with the cord and occasionally you actually even snap the cord there were times i remember putting clamps on the cord and cutting the cord when it was still yeah. around the neck because it was so tight now yeah. that's the way i was taught but i'm thinking that the baby will come out anyway um yeah. because the, the, baby... the placenta and the uterus and the cord and the baby are all Moving down, down together. Yeah. Right. Right. So, now, if the baby sense. is in a bad way, if it's having very, very deep variable decelerations and you want to expedite it, that's a different story. We're not talking about those rare exceptions. We're talking about leaving nature to do what nature designs itself to do and does really well in almost every other mammal who has a C-section rate essentially of zero, except for French bulldogs. Stu, <laughs> <laughs> so, have you noticed the element is everywhere these days? I, have you noticed that? I feel like maybe we had something to do with it. Yeah, I have. I know maybe it's maybe it's growing. And you know what? It really, I'm seeing it in professional sports. I'm seeing celebrities and and famous athletes all supporting it, and and I'm not surprised. Yeah, because you you and I no, we don't we don't support products we don't believe in. And I I drink Element every day. 
Yeah, yeah. Element Awesome. It's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, as I like to say, like us. And it doesn't have any sugar. So many, so many drinks that you want to, you know, imbibe in have things in it that maybe aren't so good for you. And what's so great about this is it has that balance of electrolytes that you need for your body. And it's great for birth workers, as you were saying, athletes. We can recommend it to our pregnant mamas, laboring, postpartum. And it's just an amazing, and it's a little packet that you can just toss in your water bottle. So it's also really environmentally conscious as well. Yeah, and you can pack them when you go on trips and you can you can use them when you're on the go. And it's not a substitute for obviously eating healthy, but yeah. literally when you're on the go, rather than drinking something that's unhealthy, it's certainly like, like I'm historically <laughs> <laughs> have done for most of my adult life. I love using my element. And of course, I'm a big fan of the raspberry salt. And you, your favorite was the mango chili, but that comes in grapefruit, watermelon, citrus, orange, lemon, chocolate, and unflavored as well. So we love them. And we hope that you will support them by going to drink element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts. That's it's not a code word. It's just a backslash. So that's drinklement.com backslash birthing instincts you'll get a free sample pack with every order. So we want to thank Element for being our sponsor for a really long time now, and we love them. We do. Thank you. I want to take one step back. Okay. About, normally, the most common thing to do is to cut the cord, but there are other ways of separating. There is burning of the cord, which is a more intentional kind of slows down the process of separating the cord rather than cutting. Some people feel like because they honor, there's a lot of reverence around the placenta, that that separation between the baby and its lifeline with the scissors is just a little bit too aggressive. So they would like to do something a little bit more gentle. And then there's also doing a lotus birth where you actually talk about natural, you actually let it fall off of the baby naturally, but then you're carrying around this organ for many days. So there's ways to preserve and use salt and herbs and stuff to be able to do that. Robin Lim has a great book called um, Placenta, uh, Something Chakra, forgetting the whole title. But that's a great resource if you wanted to look more into things like Lotus Birth. Um, I found a really good website while I was researching this. It's called bloodtobaby.com. And this is all that they do is talk about optimal cord clamping and why to do that. And there was an article in their blog that talks about the spiritual part of it. So while I'm talking about this, I just wanted to read. I found it, I found it interesting. In pregnancy, the pulsation of the mother's heart translates through the umbilical cord in harmony with the baby. Spiritual energy works like magnetics and flows by the channels of the automatic and somatic nervous systems. The energetics of the heart is the somatic connection of love. The energy is known as kundalini, meaning root and movement akin to a snake. Hence, a snake is representation of transformation. It is also sexual energy, the energy that moves through individuals during lovemaking and orgasmic response. Waiting until the umbilical cord turns white is part of the ultimate love story, a metaphor and physiologic benefit. The soul is integrating as well as all the physio physiological benefits of blood volume. The rasa at play is giving the child the first essence of life on its own after being grown from the mother's body. This emotional separation is a paramount setting to its first experience earthside. 
a blueprint for the child's life. So I just thought that was so pretty to just talk about like, you know, this, even in the separating of placenta and baby and how you attend to the cord can be something that you do intentionally with reverence, thinking about this baby, the baby having its first experiences. Yeah, I can tell you that the medical model isn't going to uh, pay much attention to the baby's chakra because they, they don't have time for that. Okay. Talk about a mood, mood kill. I've got, well, yeah, okay. You go first because you asked me questions and I want, I got some stuff that I want to talk about with this too. So. so another post that I did last week, which got a ton of traction was a picture of a mom in a OR holding her baby that she just delivered breach surrounded by all of these people in PPE and stuff. Amazing. So, that was a, by the way, that is an amazing photograph The look on her face. It's and so everybody's great. standing around here with all the PPD on and stuff like that. Yeah, it's an amazing picture. Yeah. Everybody should see that picture. So there was a lot of people commenting about the safety of reach and da 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 da. There was a lot of stuff. But one one thing that you and I talked about, which I thought would be interesting to weave into the conversation, is that someone had talked about reach being one of the risk factors for breach besides head entrapment, which a lot of us have heard, is the potential an increased risk of cord compression. And I wanted to kind of just bring that up in case it's on anybody else's mind in terms of the cord. And I just would love for you to say what you said. What did I say? (laughs) (laughs) That you didn't, didn't think it was an increased risk. Since you're a breach specialist, I think you can speak to this. I don't think you see variable decelerations with breaches more so than you see them with head down babies. It's not been my experience. I also do think that, yes, cord prolapse is more common in in complete and incomplete breaches or footling breaches or preemie breaches, which we're not really talking about here today, than it is with head down babies or frank breaches where the, you know, the, the cervix is more plugged. But a cord prolapse in, a, in an incomplete or complete breach is much less of an emergency in general than if a cord prolapses with a head with a cephalic presentation, because there's less likely to be for the cord to be c- compressed. So I, I don't I don't know why somebody thought that there's more likely to be variables or that sort of thing with breach. It's not something that I have seen, and if it is, it, the increase isn't something that would be registering on the radar as as a reason not to do breach delivery. Breach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other one was prolapse. So maybe you can speak to prolapse really fast. Well, I sort of just mentioned that, that there is a higher rate of prolapse. Uh, again, so I've been going through numbers with our, our friend uh, uh, Raquel, who had a home breach birth with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you were there, but with Alex was there. I was traveling. Yeah, she had a VBAC breach, VBAC after three home breach birth. Yeah. Um, for any trolls listening. Uh, we love you. Yeah, we love you too. Um, <laughs> and she she was looking, she's doing some research and posting on this. and. You know, my my research overall looks at a, the risk of cord prolapse is about one in 500 with a head down term baby, and it's about one in 250 with a term breech baby. But it's higher if the breech is incomplete or or complete rather than frank. But it's not something that's necessarily, you know, a crash-worthy emergency as it would be if it's, you know, a head down situation where the woman, the head is, the baby isn't imminently deliverable. Ideally, the best thing you can possibly do if you have a cord prolapse, if the baby's imminently deliverable with a vacuum for a head down baby or a breech extraction for a breech baby is to do that because faster, better for the baby, better for the mother, better for the mother's future babies to get that baby out. But unfortunately, because they don't teach breech delivery anymore, 
if you have a breach where you have the butt beginning to protrude and the cord suddenly drops out, they're gonna they're gonna take her they're gonna put her on knee and chest. They're gonna take her back and do an emergency C section under general anesthesia for her. When literally a skilled breach practitioner would have that baby out in probably about fifteen seconds. Um, and concern with the cord prolapse. This is just in general. I'm not talking about position of the baby. The concern with cord prolapse is about the 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 potential of it getting compressed as the as the baby's body comes through the pelvis, right? Yes. Okay. Not That's, having anything to do with the cord coming out and being exposed to air. No, it has nothing to do with being exposed to air. Yeah, you know, I've had cord prolapses where, oh, there's the cord. Hmm. What's her exam? Oh, she's complete. She's breech. Uh, okay. Um, this is what we're going to do. If you're okay with that, otherwise we'd have to call an ambulance and. By the time we did all that, there, there could definitely be a problem with your baby. But the cord, with the cord prolapsing, the, pol- the baby's heart rate was still 130, 140. Yeah. Because it wasn't being compressed. If it's compressed, then the baby has a vagal reaction. And you hear this deep deceleration, which nobody in our profession likes to hear. Boom, boom. No. Boom. <laughs> we do not. <laughs> oh, my God, no. We just don't want that. Sometimes this is not not necessarily having to do with a prolapse, but sometimes the cord does get pinched. And it's usually when the baby is coming through the pelvis, because that's when the bones of the baby and the pelvis could be a really tight squeeze and the cord could be in between. And so if we do hear something like that, what we would most often do is change positions and usually it will remedy itself just to get the pressure off of the cord. I wondered, I know you talked a little bit about like having the cord around the neck and all of that, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the cord accidents because they do happen. Yes. Yeah. Well, babies, babies are, could be fine one day and then the next day they're not moving. You go in and you diagnose with a stillbirth. And a lot of times, almost always, it's not obvious why that happened, but everybody wants an explanation. So when the baby comes out, Somebody meaning well will say something like, oh, look, the cord was around the neck. Like, yeah, but you just told me, Bliss, that 30 to 40% of babies are born with a cord around the neck that you find. So that's not an explanation as to why it happened. You know, cord compression can be the cause, but it's hard to know. And sometimes you see a, a cord and there's an infarct in the cord. It's like, why? Why did that, that happen? That's where, the, that's where the, there's an area of the cord that looks like it died. You know, it's oh, okay. black and blue. It looks black and blue. It looks different than the rest of the cord. Mm-hmm. And you can see that. And even if a baby is born after a demise by C-section, so it doesn't even go through labor, you can sometimes see an area of the cord that looks like it had a clot or infarcted or something like that. And so, you, again, the reason why is very unclear. Nobody understands. And so, you know, it's very, very unusual. Sometimes you, there could be a cord avulsion if you have a very very weak velamentous insertion, and that can happen. And then you'd have the baby bleeding it, you know, into the amniotic fluid or something like that. And then you'd have port wine, amniotic fluid colored fluid. That's redundant, but you know what I mean? It, fluid would be, it would look like, uh, look like the tub would look after a woman's given birth in the, in the tub. And the fluid should never look that color. That's, that means. Yeah. And these are rare and not preventable. They're just. That's correct. Ultimately. They're not something to worry about. Worrying doesn't solve anything. I actually posted a meme recently that all the anxiety in the world doesn't make whatever is going to happen not happen. So it it doesn't make any sense to worry about things that you have no control over. When and again, statistics, and this gets this gets me to where I wanted to go, was the use of statistics is always, not always, is often skewed 
and misused with relative risk versus actual risk. And the idea that we would have cord clamping that would be one minute or three minutes or two to five minutes or whatever, the fact that nature, nature doesn't work that way. So I call this like the stupidity of numbers, you know, and interfering with nature's design. This is not really what's going on. And, and thinking that when you interfere with by saying, okay, like ACOG says in 2023, ACOG Committee Opinion 814, they talk about 30 to 60 seconds of cord clamping, all right? How did they come up with that? Well, they came up with, there were two studies that they referenced in, the, in their committee opinion from 2012 and 2013. So 30 to 60 seconds. Why not 62 seconds? Why not 67 seconds? Why not a minute and 42 seconds? You know, they come up with these numbers because they're rounded numbers and they don't mean anything. And then if you look, you quoted NICE, which stands for, um, I can't remember, it's a British uh, thing, but I remember what I said about acronyms. Any acronym that ever sounds so sweet is you better be careful with. Yeah. Uh, this is from the British, British National Health Service. And they, they recommend if there's no contraindication, letting the cord pulsate for greater, greater than at least three minutes. And the Royal College of OBGYN, which is a British thing also, says two minutes. And the American College of Nurse Midwifery says two to five minutes. Okay. Why are these things all even numbers? Because it's easier than making way. it up. Because they yeah. make them up. They're made up. Okay. <laughs> so they're all they're all even even numbers and they're all short. This is not the way nature works, and they're all designed to augment the way that the system works. And this is what's really important here. They don't want to sit around for 37 minutes waiting for the cord to stop pulsating. They don't have the time or the personnel, they think to do that. And so they come up with reasons like, oh, the baby's going to get too much hemoglobin. All right. Well, they looked at that in the yeah. ACOG, in the committee opinion, and they found that, that there might be slight jaundice in terms, but the baby isn't going to get polycythemia. All right. Which makes no sense. It wouldn't make any sense because polycythemia means you have more red cells than, than serum. But the blood in the placenta and the blood in the cord and the blood in the baby is all the same blood. So when the blood comes back to the baby from the placenta, it's blood and serum. It's not just packed red blood cells. So the idea that they would tell you that. And then there were people that said, well, we have to hold the baby below the placenta because if we delay cord clamping, we put the baby on the mom, the blood will flow out of the baby. All right. This was an article that came out in 2014 that refuted that. Like we needed an article to refute that. Okay. This is, <laughs> this is, this is my colleagues in, in science. That it's a closed system. So what goes out of the baby comes back into the baby. And the reason there's so much blood that's not in the baby at the very when the baby is born is because as the baby comes through the birth canal, it does get squeezed and some of the blood gets stuck in the placenta. You know, some people say as much as 30% of the baby's blood volume could be in the placenta. I don't know if that's an accurate number or not, because it's a round number. So it's probably not accurate. Because you know <laughs> what I think about round numbers. So this this starts to get you get crazy with all these things because. When I hear like somebody like in Diana saying that the doctor was going to allow uh, going to allow one minute of cord clamp delayed cord clamping, well, what's the problem with allowing two minutes or three minutes or four minutes or seven minutes or whatever? There is no problem with it other than it's inconvenient. And why does ACOG come up with that number? I don't know. I don't know what these guys think when they meet in their room and they come up with their committee opinions. I don't know who sits on these committees. It's not me <laughs> or me. It's not David uh Hayes. It's not Brad Boots Taylor. It's not you know. It's not people. You know, it's not Paul Crane. It's not Milo Chavira. Okay. None of these people sit on these committees. Who sits on these committees? These are all academicians from East Coast universities. That's who sits on. And they, yeah. and they all come up with the same consensus. It's crazy. 
Um, Sarah Wickham has some information on her website as well. She'll be on the podcast this summer, which we're really excited about. But she is talking about delayed cord clamping for six minutes is safe. (laughs) I guess they just went above the five minutes to show that it's safe. But you can look at her information. And she also talks about what you were saying, which I know is a justification that comes from the medical system a lot of why not to do optimal cord clamping is the increased risk of jaundice. And she says that there is really no uh, definitive evidence that says that that's true. And again, you go back to nature. And you can watch, and you, and, and so the, the baby's blood has got so many things in it that the baby needs, not just stem cells, but the but the iron stores that are in there. I mean, I, I did a little work on that and it says, you know, if you let the baby have optimal cord clamping, you reduce iron deficiency in early childhood. Reducing iron deficiency in, in early childhood reduces the risk of developmental delays in cognitive, motor, and behavioral skills. Yeah. And there's data. And again, this also is from the ACOG's committee opinions, which will be in the show notes. So even ACOG admits that the baby's iron is important because an anemic baby, all right, is going to potentially have delayed motor, delayed cognitive, and de- delayed behavioral functioning. Okay. And for God's sake, why, why would a newborn baby be anemic? I mean, like, why can't we put that together and say, don't cut the cord. We have newborns that are anemic. This is craziness. Yeah, the it's only just- ones where you might see anemia that, that is justified is essentially a ruptured blood vessel or a placental abruption or something where the baby <laughs> loses some of its blood, That's um, that sort of thing. But no newborn baby who is otherwise healthy in utero and not suffering severe growth restriction or some other problem or has some, you know, hemoglobinopathy, whatever, but we're not, you know, we're not going out to way out in left field here. There's no reason that a baby should ever be iron deficient when they're born. No. Right. Not unless you cut their frigging cord. Yes. Be be smart. So so the lesson here is don't cut the frigging cord. Yeah. Wait for and if you're in the hospital, you can advocate for that. You can tell your provider that you want to feel that that cord is stopped pulsing. And you can feel that yourself. You put your hands on the cord, you can feel it pulsing. You can look at it and see that it's white and flaccid. And then you can say, okay, we give permission. You can definitely advocate for this. The last thing I wanted to make sure and mention is that in terms of cord blood banking, which I did want to do an episode on it, we haven't done that yet, is that you can do both. It is possible to do both. We do it at home if you really want to bank your cord blood for some reason, but you have to understand that it's going to be closer to what we were talking about in terms of delayed cord clamping and optimal cord clamping, because if you wait till it's white and flaccid, it's a lot harder to get blood from the placenta to get enough volume for what they need to bank it. So that's a decision that you have to make personally. Yeah, they are do- They are doing now, though they've expanded to doing tissue banking where they actually can take the umbilical cord and there is stem cells in the warden's jelly and in some of the blood that's still in the cord so they can use that. The baby deserves its own stem cells, its own autotransfusion. And the last thing I wanted to just say was there are exceptions to, to delayed or optimal cord clamping, and those would be rare, but they Great. would be something that affects the placental circulation, like um, abruption of the placenta, cord avulsion, or an unstable mother. So the baby is born, but the mother has, God forbid, thrown a amniotic fluid embolus or something like that. And she's not even oxygenating herself anymore or whatever else. Cut the cord, give the baby to the NICU team or the nursery team, and focus on the mother. 
Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. I think, did we beat that horse to? I think we did a good job. Okay. I think we did a good job too. I think you did. A, you, I love the fact that you did research. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I mean, this was a topic that you have passion about. I don't mean it in a pejorative way. I just, it's just really fun yeah. to see you quoting stuff. And, you know, think, I don't know, I get, gives me energy. <laughs> okay. Well, then I'll have to make sure and do it more often and give you energy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was great to see you. I have a live that I'm about to do about how doulas can help moms choose out of hospital birth and be a little bit more assertive in terms of advocating for that, knowing that there's a lot of positive things. So if you didn't catch that live, you can go back and look at it. So I got a bounce, but it was great to cover this topic. One more checked off the list of our long list of topics. So if you are the morning, afternoon, evening, or middle of the night, we appreciate you listening and we hope you'll support our sponsors. Please. And we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 